Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1954. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in France, of all places, wee oui, wee, oui, with a very special guest by the name of Steve Holt, who's actually from the UK. Steve, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have it in gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? Oh, yes, definitely. All right, we're going to have some fun today, but before we start, what's one little thing that maybe most people don't know about you, Steve? Uh, <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Probably that I do actually live in France. A lot of people still think I'm back in Britain, but uh, the joys of the internet and technology, I can work here and more or less pretend to be anywhere I like. Well, it certainly makes things interesting for people. And with remote working and with the way the world is connected these days, what part of France did you decide to move to? Uh, we're down in the southwest, so as close to Spain as you can get without actually being Spanish. Ah, I see. So what is it about living in France? What what drew you there from, uh, from leaving the homeland of the UK? Uh, much slower pace of life, um, more spare time to ride the bike and do things that I like to do and be outside rather than stuck in a little office. Britain's a tiny little country when you compare it to a lot of other things. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's kind of what a lot of people are doing, and even young people these days with the remote access, is they're going to live in places that are what they like or surrounded by what they like. And also, uh, a lot of it is financially driven, too, I would assume, by many because of the cost of living in cities and in nearby cities. So uh, it sounds like a delightful, delightful life. Let me give you a brief introduction, and we're going to dive into a very interesting book that you penned, Steve Holter's Lifelong Association with All Things Automotive both as a hobby and a profession, and as a driver and an engineer, made it inevitable that his interests would gravitate towards record-breaking. Mixing his professional experience, including television research and crash investigation, with knowledge gained while working with his friend and mentor, Bluebird designer Ken Norris, as well as numerous interviews with others involved in record-breaking, he is in a unique position to unravel the true story of Crusader, this book about John Cobb's ill-fated quest for speed on the water. He's written one previous book, Leap into Legend, Donald Campbell and the Complete Story of the World Speed Record, published in 2002. We'll be back in just a minute to talk with Steve, but first a word from our sponsors, so give him a little listen, and we'll be right back. Covercraft's newest three-layer all-climate cover is especially engineered for moderate weather conditions, and it's treated with an extra UV-resistant formula. It's soft, it's breathable, and it's easy to store, all while pampering your paint, providing maximum UV, rain, and dust protection. If you live where it's windy, no worries. Simply add their gust guards for windy conditions to add extra protection to keep your cover in place. Your three-layer all-climate cover is custom-tailored with Covercraft's attention to detail, form and fit with the quality and attention to detail that's been their tradition since 1965. Covercraft protects cars, trucks, motorcycles, RVs, trailers, and watercraft, too. Every one of my vehicles is protected with a Covercraft cover. And I have a deal for you. Use the code YEAH21, Y-E-A-H-21, at Covercraft.com, and you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order, plus 
Free shipping, that's right. So get 10% off with free shipping by simply using the code YA21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. When it was time to renew my collector car policy, my carrier raised my rates by a lot. But why? My usage was the same, my car's value was the same, and I had never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. The only change was their rate, and they had no reason why. What's with that? I researched my options, I spoke to others, and with American Collectors Insurance is where I now have my policy. What a difference. A live person actually answers the phone. She spent time learning about me and my Porsche Turbo, the one I call my orange crush, and provided a reasonable quote. American Collectors Insurance now protects my special ride. I'm saving hundreds of dollars and I can sleep at night knowing my baby is properly insured. Why wait until your next premium is due? Give them a call today for your personal agreed value quote. Call 866-AC1-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of mine. Mark Green at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. So, Steve, we're back. So let's talk about this a little bit. Before we get into the book, though, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your background because you've been involved in the automotive industry and racing and cars for a long, long time. So take us on a quick little walk through your background, and then we'll dive into Crusader. Well, I started uh, racing a friend's cart when I was uh, nine years old. It turned out I was slightly better than uh, my friend at it, and his father sort of supported me in uh, an early racing career. Uh, so I went up through carts and uh, Formula Ford and into Formula 3. Simultaneously, I was getting an apprenticeship at a garage that did uh, Rolls-Royce and British Leyland vehicles. So I was sort of doing two things at once. Uh, and when I left the apprenticeship, I started working in a motor museum. I was the curator there, so I was working on cars from uh, 1898 right up to modern racing cars, whilst also demonstrating them. So I had a sort of knowledge of what it was like to be inside the car and what it was like to repair the car. And I always used to like to do this thing with customers where if we restored their car for them, I would take all the photographs of the restoration, but I'd also include all the research that I had done to make sure that we'd painted it the right colour, that the seats looked correct, that the wheels correct. And I'd always present the, uh, the client with this book to show them what we'd done and that it was correct. And that just led into a career into television because um, a company contacted me and said, oh, you've uh, you did, did some research on a car that we're doing a TV program about. Would you come and help us? So I sort of drifted off whilst racing into television at the same time. And it's just, it's one of those things, always seem to be standing in the right place at the right time with just the right amount of knowledge to, to carry me through. And that led to me doing um, television coverage in Formula One and a few other things besides. I've always been around television, research, and nice cars. Well, it sounds uh, serendipitous, and it's uh, definitely a cool way to wrap your passion for automobiles and racing and cars into a lifelong career. But it sounds like you're a bit of a forensic scientist, if you will. Well, part of my apprenticeship, because the good thing with an apprenticeship is you have to learn everything for the company that's paying for you to learn. So even though my department was um, 
mainly mechanically based. Because we did sort of uh, warranty work on new vehicles, I had to take a vehicle apart to work out why it had gone wrong. And that led to on to other courses paid for by the company in accident investigation and crash investigation. It, it sounds like I had my finger in so many pies and when I, when I sort of sometimes try and recall things, I think, really? How did I get the time? <laughs> um, yeah. But it was, it was a case of in, investigating things. So I was... If it was uh, for the company, it was to make sure we weren't spending too much money on something that wasn't our fault. And within crash investigation, it was sometimes in collaboration with the police to work out what had gone wrong, had it been a driver error or a um, a mechanical error. And then, of course, when I started working in Formula One, uh, we used to position cameras around the circuit. And part of the work I did was looking at past accidents at circuits to try and work out if it was a sensible place to put a camera. Because once a car's gone out of control, you can very rarely predict where it's going to go because all sorts of outside influences come into force. So, yes, always sort of picking at detail. And, of course, when you uh, connect that with things like researching in television, I would dread to have my name attached to anything that was inaccurate Mm. so i've been very picky with detail for many different reasons over my lifetime well this is a perfect lead into the book because i can make the setting here in a very simplistic way the year was 1952 it was john cobb and reed railton they were at the loch ness known uh, for its famous monster which uh, I guess we've seen pictures, maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe we should have had you investigate the Loch Ness monster and finally. <laughs> There's pictures of something. <laughs> finally get that resolved. Yeah. And then there was a jet powered boat. And of course, the rest is history, as they say. So let's have you dive into, first and foremost, what influenced you to write the book? Well, I've done, as you say, the, the book I've done previously on Donald Campbell. And. When you sort of go through a story where you have Donald Campbell, whose father was Malcolm Campbell, so there's the entire um, family is based around cars and speed and then boats and speed, you can't just drop into a subject. So I did, um, as I like to call it, I did a book as I, as I thought was as much like a swimming pool as possible. So each chapter was like a little paperback book attached in a big book. And my plan was that you could dive in at any chapter and read it and it would make sense. Or you could read it from page one to page 300, whatever it was. And to do that, of course, there had to be one section on what went before Malcolm Campbell going for the world water speed record after he'd uh, attained 301 in Bluebird at Bonneville. So I had to do some background in the water speed record. And to do that, you had to include John Cobb. And of course, John Cobb's career, for want of a better word, in water speed record was the one failed attempt. So it's not well known. And me being me, went out and tried to find as much information as I could. And I tried to put it into the two or three paragraphs that I was sort of could fit in for the Crusader story in the, in the first book. Mm-hmm. And I think it was about six or seven years after that book was published, a friend of mine contacted me and said, I've had a phone call from a, a very nice lady called Sally Jossley who'd like to speak to you, and it made no sense to me at all, but me, again, being me, said, yep, get her her to give me a call. And the phone rang one day, and my wife said, there's a lady on the phone called Sally Railton. Mm. And 
the alarm bells went off. I thought, <laughs> yeah. that's a name I should know yes. from the last book. Read, yes. And it, <laughs> yeah. And it was Sally that said, uh, where did you find this information from? Because this has never been written before like this. Yeah. You have things correct that are usually wrong. And that just started up a, a conversation over many, many months and years of phone calls, letters, emails, etc. And that's what kicked the idea off originally for a full biography of Railton, but it was such a massive, massive project. Sally eventually went to uh, Carl Ludwigson, who did a superb book uh, called Man of Speed, which is concentrated on Railton alone. Yes. I prefer more grease and oil. Ah. So I went. I, I said, "What I'll do is I'll research the, the 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 very sticky subject of Crusader, because the land speed cars, the uh, Napier Routon Special, and the circuit cars, they're pretty much set. People know about them, but the water speed record part of Cobb's career was, as I say, short and ultimately fatal. Absolutely. So I just sort of said, "Can I concentrate on this? And whatever I research, I'll send that to Carl." And Sally was happy with that. Until I started really digging, and I just remember saying to her one day, I really would like to take this a bit further because there's a lot more to this story than it first meets the eye. Hmm, interesting. Well, you know, Carl was a guest on the show when he wrote that book about Railton, and it was a fascinating book and, and an awesome read. Let me start with this. I always like to ask my guests about inspirational people. After doing all your research on this book, did John Cobb become even more of an inspiration for you? Um, Cobb's a funny one because you could look at something and you think, well, this is the information I need to find out. And you write down all your notes. You, know, you, ha you'll have, you, you have your to-do list, which mm -hmm. grows ever longer and never seems to go down. Yeah. And on the my to-do list, um, extract the uh, Railton archive via Sally. Number two, get the Vospers and Peter Duquesne uh, archive via family members and Vospers. Number three, get the John Cobb archive. Then you have to find a family member. But with the Cobb family, you had to find a Cobb family member that was willing to talk. Mm. Because the Cobb family, from before Cobb, John Cobb was born until today, redefined the word private. Wow. It's very, very difficult uh, to gain their trust. And I think if I was going to be uh, pushed for what I think is the reason for it, you only have to look at the fact that when I did the book on Donald Campbell, it took me two years to persuade his sister to talk to me. Wow. Because so much had been written in the press before that was inaccurate or just, just completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And maybe the Cobb family felt that, it was better to say nothing than give anyone the chance to put something incorrect. So it took me a long time to gain confidences and persuade people, and I've, I've put this in the book. It's not me pointing fingers at people as who made it go wrong. This is the evidence. You make your own mind up. Mm. And once I sort of persuaded the, uh, the, the cobs that are on now that uh, this is, this is the, uh, the, the basics of the story, I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to put a hidden agenda. There's no added text. It's literally what the three main protagonists in the story wrote to each other. And then people that read it can see, did that go wrong? Was that the right way to do it? And I, I sort of steer people through the book. And I point out certain things that maybe could have been done differently. But I certainly don't try and point the finger at anybody. 
and that was the the the, uh, the crux of the Cobb family archive. So when you say was he more of an inspiration, he's still an enigma. Mm. Really difficult to sort of put a finger on a very quiet, stoic British gentleman that was much happier with his feet up and a, a whiskey and soda reading the paper <laughs> than doing the Malcolm Campbell thing of, here I am, Sir Malcolm Campbell, please bow to me because uh, I've done so many things. Cobb wasn't about that. He was about uh, getting away from his office and driving his cars as quickly as he could. Fascinating. So when you put this together, then you took a very scientific approach and perhaps that was, well, not perhaps, that sounds like was the way that you were able to get the cobs to help out a little bit because a lot of people go into these stories with already an end in mind, if you will. They've already heard it before. They kind of know how it's going to end and they wrap it around their own way of crafting words. But it sounds like you took a very different approach, almost the way a scientist does or a forensic detective where they don't pre-assume anything. They just start to put all those facts together. Yeah, there's there's a good, there's a firm reasoning behind that because if you're going to discuss something that ends in tragedy, uh, and in this case, uh, the death of one man. There's always this uh, thinking with people that somebody somewhere is to blame. Right. So the easiest thing to do is to sort of pick it to pieces. Because, uh, I mean, all accidents are a culmination of many, many different facets. You know, had he run a bit later in the day, maybe he'd have gone both runs and thought, that's a little bit unstable, we'll, we'll try again later. If he hadn't run that day at all or the weather had turned bad and the boat had been modified, again, completely different the next year. Mm -hmm. So you sort of you, you pick the details out of it and you do it in a, you try to do it in a way that is factual because you, you cannot sort of embroider what you're finding out. It is exactly what it is that you find. You can't change it at all. So that tends to look a little bit... Um, a little bit defined, if you know what I mean. It, it makes right. it sound more scientific because you can't, you know, if, if Louis Pasteur said, well, I think that might cure people, um, he had to prove that it did. So there was a lot of research behind it. And he, in my case, I had to be as precise as possible to indicate that it wasn't me guessing, I wasn't putting my opinion, it's what happened. So you do have to be uh, quite accurate in what you write. It, it doesn't allow for flowery terms, shall we say. You have to get on with it and say, this is 100% fact. There is no room for manoeuvre. You can't argue with it. Um, and again, that's another sort of facet of this particular book because fingers had been pointed before. Uh, and I think I put in the introduction, there are certain people that will not like what this book says, mm, yeah. but it's not me saying it. Hmm, I love All it. I'm doing is drawing your attention to it. So, uh, right. yeah, it's it's that cautious way of doing things, but making sure it's 100% correct. You know, I love this. Now, I would assume that there were many challenges when you were putting this book together, when you tried to unravel history like this, especially back in 1952, where we didn't have uh, cell phones, we didn't have recording devices. I mean, there's so much that we have today that people can look at things and even now when you look at a video it's not really what happened in many cases or it's taken mm. out of context but what would you say was one of your biggest challenges or obstacles and you mentioned one the Cobb family the privateness of them but was there something even grander that was a big challenge with this project um funnily enough that 
the thing that started off being the challenge, which is exactly what you've just stated, you're, you're working with something that was as far back as 1952, which will be 70 years next September. Yes. And you're, you're talking about people with um, a little box brownie camera with maybe 16 uh, frames on the film they've got in it. So every photograph they take is uh, carefully thought about. There's no snap photography. There's no, oh, I'll just snap everything and look what looks best at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you would think that works against you, the, the, um, the lack of technology of the time. And that was the original difficult challenge, but in the end, that's what turned it around and made it better for me, because there was no email. Transatlantic telephone calls of the period had to be booked anything up to uh, three to a week, three days to a week in advance. Wow. Telegrams were slower. Telephone calls were actually limited, I think, to a maximum of 15 to 20 minutes, because uh, it's post-war, lack of materials, lack of resources, etc. Mm. So... The, the, the main protagonist in the story that I was writing about had to write letters to each other. And the fortuitous thing is they were all people that worked in business or in fields that meant they kept everything they wrote. So the lack of technology originally was the big problem, but it became the bonus to the story because I had the written words of the people that were dealing with it. So the challenge actually turned, uh, the challenge actually was uh, one in the end, because once you have, as I did, uh, about two tea chests full of paper, mm-hmm. that I then had to sort into chronological order as they were right, right, uh, right between Duquesne and Railton, Railton and Cobb, Cobb and Railton, and you've got this funny little triangle of uh, letters flying around. That was the book. So the, the challenge of trying to find the information when there is no technology to record it actually worked in my favour in the end. So um, I don't know if, there was, if it was a challenge or if I was just very lucky. Wow, that's very cool. Was there a, a takeaway that you would like the readers to finish the book with? And I don't want to give away anything in the book because I want people to get their hands on this. It's, it's a wonderful book. It's a, a very in-depth. And let's see how many pages we've got here. You're uh, around 350 plus pages, so it's uh, no short story, that's for sure. You definitely went into depth. Is there a takeaway, perhaps, you'd like the reader to end the book with? In the modern world, you would say communicate. Mm. That's the simple thing. If if there had been communication between the three parties, things may have been so much different. Um, and in the modern world, the lack of communication sort of does does lead itself to shortcomings in the way human beings do things but there was never really the sort of suggestion for, for me that you know you always watch films and there's always the underlying story and there's the the this thing at the end the uh, it's like a fable where there's a, a moral at the end that you need to learn mm-hmm. this was basically um how can i put this in the past there had been something like 16 magazine articles written on crusader and three books um, one of the three books was a, a little pamphlet that didn't go into a great deal of detail. And all of these books and magazine articles were written within three years of the accident. So they were all of their time, uh, and they were all very um, concentrated on the accident more than the people's lives behind the human element of it. So I suppose my thing was to get the human element. You know, there, there were three people behind this. It wasn't just some guy in his shed, knocking up a boat and 
killing himself, trying to do something um, as an ambition. There was you know, serious science involved. There was serious, serious technology and engineering involved, which a lot of people sort of missed. Um, you know, the, the throwaway comments I've heard were, well, you can't put a jet engine in a wooden boat. Well, in 1952, you had to get a license to build anything from a garden shed up. There weren't the materials post-war just to do things, so everything had to be licensed for construction by the Ministry of Supply. There was a lot more to it, and Crusader was possibly a victim of its time in that Reed Routon's thinking was so advanced, the materials were way behind him. Mm. And he tried to compensate for that in the design, and then the lack of communication was the problem. So the takeaway for me would be communication, I think. You know, if you can learn anything from it, learn to speak to people and make sure your points got across, really. Yes, I, I love it. I used to run a company and I used to tell everybody there that communication is the key to our success and the lack of it is the reason why we fail. And, exactly. Uh, I wish I'd just said that. That's a lot more succinct than I could say. <laughs> well, I had a lot of practice at it. It seemed to be communication was always a challenge for many, many people. So having written two wonderful books now, will there be a third, do you believe? It's finding the subject because, again, I think I said in the book, I'd, I'd looked for something. Um, I didn't want to saddle myself with the, oh, that's the guy that writes about uh, jet-powered boats that crash. Hmm. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there's this thing, uh, I did Bluebird, oh, that was a jet-powered boat that crashed. Uh, Crusader, that's a jet-powered boat that crashed. Right. Um, I was looking in between at some subjects and I was asked, because I have done other books, but sort of as a ghostwriter for other people, mm-hmm. or done the, the bulk of the work for other people, and then they put their name on it. So it's not a new thing to me. And I was asked to look at uh, a very well-known musician in England that had, uh, had a, an extraordinary life. I had been asked to look at um, a, a comedian that used to uh, appear on British television quite regularly. Mm-hmm. And sort of just, you scratch the surface, you think there's nothing new. And for me, if I can find something that's got something new that hasn't been read before, then there's every good reason to write the book. Um, I probably make myself very unpopular. Now. I can't remember. I've lost count how many books there are on Ayrton Senna. And right. you know, the the basic crux is he was born in Brazil. He went up through motor racing. He uh, died in a racing car, uh, having been world champion. And that's the story. It doesn't change. How can you get over 136 books out of one subject. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> So yeah. I need the new information. I need the story that hasn't been told that people, if I, th- I think people want to read. And if I can find that subject, as long as it doesn't take me another 15, 16 years to research, uh, <laughs> yes. I'll be more than happy. There you go. Well, I certainly hope so. Let's talk a little bit about your background here. If I had you talk about a special vehicle in your life, now this could include maybe one of the many race cars you ran. What would that be? And tell me a, a little story about that ride. Um, I think if, if I could have in my garage one of the vehicles I've been involved in in the past, uh, it would be a Rel RT31 Formula 3 car. It was that sudden jump for me in, when I was racing that uh, I went from treaded tyres and no aerodynamic to slick tyres and aero. And I thought I'd made it, you know, just to be allowed to do some test laps in a Formula 3 car. There was any thought then that I might be racing it the next year. And it was a hard lesson learned. I, the engineer I used to work with is a super, superb chap. 
Um, he said to me, I'll go out and do a, a lap. And when you get to the corner at the end of the start, finish straight, go round that in fourth at 4,000 revs, which I did. And then when I came into the pits, he said, now do the same and go around that corner in the same gear, but at 8,000 revs, which <laughs> I did. Uh, then he got me to do it in the aero car. And, of course, when I went in the gap in between, I spun off. And I remember timidly driving back around thinking, I've broken the car. I'm never going to be allowed to drive a proper racing car again. Mm -hmm. And the engineer said, what happened? Where did you spin off? And I said, how did you know? And he said, at one speed, you were relying on mechanical grip. And at the higher speed, you were relying on aerodynamic grip. Ah. The bit in the middle is the bit you have to learn about. I see. And Brilliant. I remember, I just remember the car. I remember what it taught me. And if I could have that in the garage tomorrow, it would be there being polished mercilessly. <laughs> <laughs> so that that Ralt, right, it was founded by ex-Jack Brabham associate Ron. Yeah, Ron Turanek. Tornak. Yeah, Tornak. Ron Turanek, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very, very cool. That's fascinating. I've had many race car drivers on the show, and you talked about, let's say, some Indy car drivers, and they talk about going to the Indy 500 and learning about downforce and how to go mm. through a corner without lifting, where all your yeah. senses say can't do this, can't do this, but the car does it. So that's fascinating. I, I would guarantee you every racing driver you'll ever speak to, uh, if you ask them what their thoughts were before the engine started and just before the visor goes down, they'll all sit there and think to themselves, what on earth am I doing here? <laughs> I've never met a racing driver that hasn't thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, you know, my listeners have heard this, but I have to share because my first, I raced vintage cars. My first vintage race car was a Lotus Formula Junior, Lotus 18. Oh, lovely, yeah. Of course, Jimmy Jimmy Clark drove that car, uh, not mine, but a car like that back in the day. And the first day that I raced that car was up here and it was raining and I was very, very nervous. And I was sitting there and you, you brought that thought back. And as I put my wet visor down, I thought, I've got a wife and kids at home. What am I doing? This is crazy. Yeah. And my good friend, Louis Shefshik, who uh, helped keep take care of that car for me, came up and knelt down and said, how you doing, Mark? And I said, uh, a little nervous. You know, I think my right leg was shaking a little bit. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, well, remember, the throttle goes both ways. Yeah. <laughs> So I was, yeah, and of course the voice the visor goes down, the lights go green, and the red mist comes down, and you forget everything you'd ever thought I know. about. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I did stay on track, but I was probably well. I know I was very slow that day, but I was being very careful uh, with all that rain. Now I'm going to be your car psychologist today. All right, this is a question <laughs> I'll bet no one's ever asked you. If you were manifest as a vehicle, this isn't what you want to be. This is the man in the mirror. How you perceive yourself manifest as a vehicle could be a street car, could be a race car doesn't really matter. What would you be, but more importantly, why? Mm. It made you think, didn't I? It, it did. It's uh, the psychology of it. I need to be practical. Okay. I like to have some fun at the weekend, so cool. it's got to be a four-seat sports car. Okay. Um, but maybe slightly exotic. Let's go for a Lamborghini Espada. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Interesting car, interesting choice. The Espada is such a... I don't know how to even describe that car when I when I Big look at clumsy? it. Big and clumsy? Well, you know, I, I wasn't going to say that because we're talking about you, Steve. So I wanna, I'll let you put those words in your mouth. I'm not going to plant them there. But yeah, it always was kind of an interesting car because you kind of wanted to like it. But then you looked at the back end and you went, what happened back here? Yeah, uh, maybe not so much with me, that the back end. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like that need to be practical, but yeah, also yeah. To, you, know, you need to be quick enough to have a bit of fun. Sure. But um, I'm certainly not as nimble as a, a, as a K-Trim 7, which I 
oh. you know, love to have. Yes. So, you know, you've got to be honest with yourself, especially if it's psychology. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quick enough to have some fun, but, you know, the only thing probably that's wrong with the Lamborghini is lack of reliability. Well, yeah, you sound to be a little more reliable than that, but we'll we'll discard that for now because they're such beautiful cars and uh, the legacy and so forth. So I like your answer. Maybe I should change it for now for a Mayo Montreal then. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, maybe we're doing a little better. You know, there's always room for improvement, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> always. Well, we're talking today with the wonderful Steve Holter, uh, a UK gentleman who's in the southwest of France, and about his book, Crusader, John Cobb's Ill-Fated Quest for Speed on water is published by our good friends at evro and of course his other book which i'll put a listing of leap into legend donald campbell and the complete story of the world speed record so uh you can get your hands on both these books uh definitely this new book you should have on your library shelf now before i let you go i'm going to take you on what i call the ultimate drive steve i can enable you to be in any vehicle with any person living or deceased and you can be driving anywhere in the world what does the ultimate drive look like for you today any country road anywhere as long as the sun's out ah um some something with no roof uh, but quite enough so i can uh, listen and talk to the person i'm with mm-hmm. and it would have to be my father ah um because really and truthfully it was my dad that started me on all of this mm-hmm I remember when I was seven, my dad uh, calling me in from playing with my toy car that he'd given me for Christmas, and say, "You you want to watch this? This is uh, this is the end of an era," and that was Donald Campbell's accident at Coniston on the fourth of January, nineteen sixty-seven. Oh wow! Absolutely meant nothing to me at all. I was seven years old. Yeah. I thought, "Yeah, I want to go back to my little toy BRM." It was three days later. It wasn't. It was six days later. Uh, I remember going into the same room and my mum telling me that last night my father had died. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And I was seven. He was 33. Oh, uh, Never really got to know him well enough. Yeah. So if I was – so the thing I always associate with my dad is him teaching me to draw Bluebird and then watching the end of it with him, and that's the last thing I remember with him. So to be able to sit in a car and catch up, as I – it's funny. I I said to my uh, wife the other day, We've just come back from a trip to England for the launch of the book, funny enough. And I said to her, do you know, my youngest son has driven me in his car quite quickly. My eldest son has never driven me in a car in my life. Oh, or wow. he's. Wow. He's never, I've never sat in a car with him while he's driving. So, yeah, the simple answer to your question is just to drive my dad and have a chat with him yeah. and catch up. That would be perfect. Oh, gosh. I wish, Steve, I could do that more than anything right now. Wow. That's yeah. uh, that's heartwarming. Wow, I'm so sorry you lost him at such a young age. That's just tragic. Well, maybe you need to uh, take that drive in that country road with uh, your older son driving. Yes, yeah, but not in my cage room. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, uh, hard to have a conversation. <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, you have taken us on a wonderful journey today, and I can only say this to the listeners. If you love of facts and details and history and speed. You got to get your hands on this book titled Crusader by Steve Holter. Uh, Before I let you go today, could you share with us maybe some parting words of wisdom or inspiration or a success quote or a mantra? I was asked just before Crusader came out by a chat, said, how do you write a book? And I said, well, you get a subject and you either buy a pen and a notepad or you buy yourself a laptop and you sit down and you write it. There's no secret to it. Um, find something you like and write about it. So 
basically, I would say, if you think you need to do something, get out there and do it. Yes, absolutely. My son's writing a book right now, and he, he works in the tech industry, but he's writing a book. And uh, one of the things he's done is he's uh, has an editor who is kind of helping him with this process because it's the first book that he's ever written. He's 27, actually. He just turned 28 <laughs> two days ago. <laughs> Sorry about that, Blake. Uh, but uh, that's another way to do it. But you're right. You just have to sit down and write. That's like The hardest thing is switching the laptop on. Yes. It's always that way. You know, you walk through the house and there's there's the coffee pot. There's the, the tin of biscuits. It's easier to, to sit down <laughs> and watch the television. Yes. The hardest part is just sit, switch the thing on or pick the pen up and do it. There's no secret to it. Um, it's just this... I don't know if it's a fear of failure or um, I can't do it. Everybody can do it. So just do it. Practice, practice, practice. Yeah. Is there a way for people to follow along with you? Do you play in the social media world? Do you have a website? I'm on Facebook. Uh, other than that, I just, <laughs> that takes up way much, uh, too much time as it is. So I, I just stick to Facebook. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Well, I understand these social media things can suck your life out of you. That's for sure. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Well, I want to do a shout out to my good friend, our good friend, Judy Stropus, uh, and my friends at Evro Publishing for introducing me to Steve. Thank you, you too. Steve, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your new book, Crusader, with us. I'll make sure I put links to that on Steve's show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Many thanks. You're welcome. I've discovered Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual, informed, reasoned opinion based on first-hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. And be sure to use the code CARSYEAH when you subscribe, and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. Cars Yeah is proud to support our veterans, which is why I've teamed up with our nonprofit partner, Tech Force Foundation, through its Veterans at Work Military Transition Campaign. The tech shortage is very real, and our country needs skilled, qualified techs to keep our cars, trucks, airplanes, and fleets rolling. When so many vets build their skills in maintaining and servicing vehicles when deployed, TechForce helps transition those skills to jobs as professional technicians when they come home. Learn more about TechForce Foundation and its Veterans at Work Military Transition Fund at techforce.org today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!